Swing and a drive. High five ball left field. This is deep. This is 50. Oh, my. Get up, ball. Get up, ball. Right on cue. What a way to cap off the spring. Good afternoon. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That was a much more familiar voice. You just heard uh, some great news around the Toronto Blue Jays as Buck Martinez will be welcomed back to the booth tonight. I will talk about that a little bit throughout the show. Chris Black, sports and producer on with us. Shai Davidi on with us a little bit uh, later. We've got Dan Schulman tomorrow. and We'll talk about um, just how big a boost it is morale wise and just, you know, everyone very, very happy uh, to have Buck, Buck Martinez back in the booth, back around the team back feeling well enough uh, to be doing those things. Really excited. uh, Really great to have Buck back around. He'll be in the booth because the Jays are back tonight as well. Uh, Day off yesterday. Did it cool off one of the hottest teams in baseball? We'll find out. We'll find out if Andre Pallante can cool off a team that has the best offensive baseball over the last uh, 10 games. The Jays didn't play yesterday. So here's where things stand. We'll just tee it up and we'll we'll probably start doing this regularly because it's not September yet, but it's you know, once the deadline's in in sight and especially once it's in the rear view, you got to look at the standings here and there. And the Jays are about to play two against a shorthanded Cardinals team and then four against the last place Tigers, the worst offense in baseball. Meanwhile, a lot of the teams around them in the wildcard race are playing against each other. So the way things line up right now, yes, the Jays are still 12 and a half back in the division. That's probably not going to change materially. However, they're in the first wild card spot. You've got Tampa, a game back, Seattle, an extra half game back. And then Cleveland, Boston, Baltimore, and the White Sox all within five games. But you have to jump all those teams. The, the, benefit of being the first wild card team is not only that you would host the wild card series but it's also that right now you're in you're more insulated from teams catching up because they have to jump multiple teams so while the jays play st louis and detroit tampa bay and baltimore are head-to-head cleveland and boston and then you're gonna have tampa bay and cleveland after that um seattle has the houston astros who are one of the best teams in the league so you're gonna have some opportunity to continue to create space here couple small updates before we bring on Chris Black. Yusei Kikuchi is back with the Blue Jays in Toronto through a side session today. He is a candidate to start Thursday against Detroit. We'll talk a little bit about that later, whether Thursday feels like the right spot or you should delay it as long as possible. Um, Julian Merriweather threw a bullpen. Nate Pearson is playing catch from 60 feet. And Andrew Vasquez starts a rehab assignment tomorrow if you are relying on anything from Julian Merriweather, Nate Pearson, and Andrew Vasquez down the stretch here, whew, I admire your optimism, but stop. That can't be something that's in the plans. That's uh, that's what they call gravy at that point. Um, the big news again, Buck Martinez returns tonight. Who better to help us talk about that than Sportsnet television producer Chris Black. Chris, what's up, buddy? Hey, how are you doing, Blake? I am doing well. I know, I mean, you you are around all of the sports that broadcasters so often, but man, how big a morale boost is this for you and for everyone to have Buck Martinez back around tonight? Yeah, I'm on uh, vacation this week, so I'm actually up north. So I'm, oh. I texted Buck yesterday um, that I'm missing, uh, I'm upset that I'm missing the uh, day, but I'll be watching as a fan, which I've been doing for 
30 years listening to him call Jay's game. So super excited. Um, one of the coolest parts of me kind of lucking into this job over the last couple of years um, has been getting the opportunity to work with people like Buck, people like Dan Shulman, people that I grew up listening to. Uh, these guys have been around for 30 years and it's not to age them, but they've just been a part of this franchise forever. And he's been, he's been the voice of this team um, literally from the glory days until now. Um, so it's, it's really cool. I'm really happy that he's back and everyone is like, I think you hate that it sometimes works out this way, but you know, he's gotten so much praise. And I think, I think so many people have realized how much they missed him when he went away. Um, Cause he's just, he's so good. He's, he really is just one of the best. He is. And by all accounts, I, I've never had the pleasure of meeting him, but everyone talks about how, how wonderful a person he is as well. Uh, did you actually want to do your top three reasons why you love Buck Martinez or is that just a joke? <laughs> no, I'm sure I've got many, many reasons. Uh, I'm capping, uh, but, I'm capping you at three. We're not doing a whole, three. a whole segment on, uh, on Buck. All right. You got three, three, three things. One encyclopedia, like, his Rolodex is amazing. This guy played Little League against Dusty Baker in California, and he was in the military with Leo Mazzoni, the Atlanta Braves huh. uh, pitching coach from years gone by. So, like, that, those are just two examples of how his Rolodex is just crazy. Um, two, I love his self-deprecating humor. Anytime Dan would ask him a question about, hey, what, what would you do in this scenario? And it'd be some answer of, you know, just try not to strike out or something <laughs> like that. I love his self-deprecating humor. And the last thing that I'm going to love, the first time, every once in a while we run billboards or a scenic coming out of a commercial break. And sometimes it's showing uh, the food at the ballpark. So whether it's a bunch of hot dogs on the grill, maybe it's a Philly cheesesteak sandwich and they're in Philly. And I love how excited or hungry Bucket, you know, I could go for one of those. I, I get really excited and I like irrationally enjoy those <laughs> things as well. How excited he gets seeing the food shots uh, in the ballpark. Fitting, so, super excited. Fitting then that you're, I, I didn't realize you were on vacation when I asked you to come on today. Sorry, man. Um, but you are uh, up north. I'd imagine you've got the grill going uh, for, you know, probably during Jay's Talk Plus here, five to seven, but then maybe also leading into uh, the Sportsnet Radio Network broadcast uh, if you're outside. Uh, what's up up north? Why why are you taking time out from your vacation with your family to talk to me? The, there's all, well, A, because you're a part of my family, Blake. I love Aww. you. Um, two, uh, I always do a short period right before tennis to kind of recharge the battery. Mm. So I'm, I move over to tennis in early August. That's one of my longest weeks of the year. So I always kind of recharge the batteries before going crazy on that. Wait, when in August does tennis fire up? Uh, the second week. Oh, second week. Okay. I just, I just want to make sure we get your overreactions to the deadline next week. That's all. Oh, you will. Oh, I'll be there. Don't worry. Uh, okay. So, um, Last time you were on, or, or two times ago you were on, actually, um, the Jays were in this one and nine stretch, and we talked about that curious trying to trying to navigate. Well, when a team has a stretch like that, is that a cold stretch that you would expect them to regress back from, or is that the regression? Is that the bad? Is that the bad stretch of coming back down to earth? And it doesn't work exactly that way. Gambler's fallacy and all that, but I think we got our answer a little bit in this eight one. Eight and one bounce back the Jays have had once again, like they were from uh, the last week of May until late into June, the best offense in baseball. Um, They're back to number three in offense by weighted runs created plus overall, which doesn't look at just runs. It kind of 
puts everyone on the same playing field with park factors and things like that. Um, so they're the number three offensive baseball now over uh, a pretty good sample here. We're 96 games in. Where do you think this team's like, are you, are you comfortable saying that 96, almost a hundred games in here? We now know what this offense is and it is a top five, maybe top three offense. Like we expected. Um, yes. As, as, to put it simply, I've always been bullish on the offense. Um, never really understood kind of the consternation that a lot of people had about it. Um, I think in a lot of ways, they're the deepest lineup in baseball. I know obviously it's easy to say that after the week that they've had, but even before this week, um, we have, we discussed a couple times on how their kind of production down in the order was the best in baseball. And right now, five through nine, they have a 770 OPS and that's about 30 points better than the second place team. So they're the, they're the deepest lineup in baseball. Um, I think Guriel has shown that the catchers have shown that, uh, Tapia, Biggio, Chapman, like they have at least, I don't know what you'd say, conservatively seven hitters who would be top five hitters or top four hitters in any other lineup. So I think they've created a lineup that it really is among the deepest in baseball. I'd put it maybe with the Dodgers, but I've always, I, I was never concerned about the offense. So I'm I'm happy that kind of they've had the run differential kind of explosion to kind of move them back up where I thought they kind of belonged. And that's where I thought I really did think that they're kind of, they wouldn't regress to the run differential, that the run differential would improve to the record. And that's kind of what we've seen recently. So another way to cut the depth of the lineup, and I use this, I was on the fan morning show today with JD and Ailish, and I, we did, we brought back my old one big number segment from when I was on with them. And that one big number was 12. And that's 12 of the 13 position players currently on the roster are league average bats or better on the season. Like within a rounding error, we, I gave I gave old Zach Collins the thumbs up at 96 WRC plus. I figured that was close enough in a small sample. Um, but Bradley Zimmer is the only position player they have who hasn't been at least a league average bad. And that's that's a that's a really nice luxury to have if you're John Schneider or, or who, you know, when it was Charlie Montoyo, people were saying, well, the analytics staff fills out the lineup card. And now it's now it's John Schneider, whoever you want to give. The credit to, that's a really nice luxury to have. Um, for a while there, though, it looked like maybe this bench was flawed and they hadn't done enough to address it relative to years past. Have you learned anything in this process, like going through this and seeing some of the guys round into form about how we judge a team's depth, especially early in the year? Uh, a couple things. I, I do think... Kevin Biggio becoming a productive hitter again really is, I don't want to like overdo the importance of a guy who's kind of a utility guy, but he really solves a lot of problems um, in terms of giving certain guys days off in terms of giving great at bats down in the lineup. Like he's him becoming what he was a couple of years ago, really changed the dynamic. And the other one, obviously that's kind of changed things is Tapia becoming really productive over the last two months of the, of the season. He's been kind of, kind of beyond my expectations for what I thought he could do. Um, and those two guys, both being lefties, both being able to spell some guys who need days off from time to time and both being able to spell some positions that can go hot and cold. I think Teoscar is one of the kind of bigger variance guys on the team. I think Guriel 
can be like that as well, like extreme hot streaks and some some kind of weeks or months of the year where he's not as hot. So the fact that they can move into those spots, I just think the lineup's really flexible and Toppy and Bijou have a big part uh, in that. And I think the the part that makes that, that amplifies that even more is that you have Santiago Espinal, who was maybe penciled in as like a platoon guy, or maybe he could have lost the job to Kevin Bijou and he'd be the utility guy. Well, you almost get the, it's almost like Bijou can play any position because the positions he can't play, you could just bump Espinal there. And there's that nice bit of overlap that Espinal provides. I want to dig in a little bit more on Ryan Maltapia though, because he has been... Like, this hasn't been he's become serviceable of late. He has the number 25 WRC plus in all of baseball over the last 60 days. I think you you messaged me that his OPS is even higher than that. It's top 20 or something like that. Um, he's now up to being an above average bat on the season. So we heard when, like, we all knew that the Randall Gritchick, Ryan Maltapia swap was a little bit about Pinto and maybe more than a little bit about shaving some of the the money off the the books. If if Randall Gritchick wasn't going to play a big role, get a little cheaper there. And yeah, they ate some money, but but it's still a, a net positive cash-wise. Um but we also heard a little bit of there were some things that the team saw with Tapia that they thought they could get more out of him with. Have you seen those things like when you dig into the stat cast stuff and the kind of things this front office looks at for buy low candidates, are you seeing what they envisioned with Ryan Tapia, do you think? Well, to be honest, like I said, like he kind of he's kind of exceeded my expectations. I I saw tools, I saw speed, I saw a guy, I think I've mentioned this before, he's bigger in person. Like he's he's listed at six three, I think, and somewhere like one eighty or something. He's bigger than that. I think he's probably six three, probably closer to two hundred. So when you see him, you understand where the excitement comes from. Um I just didn't like the chase. Uh I didn't like the walk rate, like the walk, the walk rates essentially non-existent even through this hot stretch. Um, but the things that are really good, he, he uses the field more than anyone on the team, even Guriel, everyone lauds Guriel for using the whole field and with good reason, but Tapia uses it even more. Like he pulls the ball less often than anyone else on the team. So I tend to like that. Those kind of guys, I tend to believe there's not, there's nothing numerical to back this up, but I just believe that guys who use the whole field are like more likely to be able to steal a hit off a really good pitcher sometimes. Um, But this production yet, like you said, he is, he's top 20 in OPS over the last two months. And that's, he's better than Teoscar, better than Guriel. He's literally better than, any of these kind of left-handed candidates that we're talking about trading for in terms of kind of depth or bench guys, obviously there's some other guys who would kind of definitely be an upgrade, but uh, we don't need to necessarily get into that, but he's just been, he's been really, really good. I do think they might be unlocking some things with them, but the thing that I still want to see is can he take a walk a little bit more often? Can he dial down the chase a little bit? If he can do that, then I really like this, where the ceiling could go. For sure. And some of it is, you know, some of what he's done so far has been floor raising, right? And you're talking about some ceiling things, but you mentioned the way he sprays the ball. This is the third season in a row. He's hit roughly 40% of his balls in play to that kind of middle third of the field, which is a really good number. And it's, you know, it makes you kind of shift proof unless a team wants to put a guy right dead center up the, up the infield. And even then, that sounds like something I was talking to Eno Saris yesterday on the show, 
And as MLB toys around with different ways of banning or limiting the shift, um, you know, there's maybe like that little rover zone in center that they're not going to let players uh, defend in. So um, he could stand to benefit even more. But that's such a good profile anyway. And then they've got him to, you know, he went from having an historically low launch angle to a slightly like being able to raise the ball slightly more often, uh, which is great. And then you hit it a little bit harder every so often. And that's great. It's just a lot of small gains, I think, that have helped raise the floor. And to your point about it, man, if the next step is they can get him to be a little bit more selective um, and, and not lose that bat to ball ability and the ability to spray a little bit, um, then he becomes a, a pretty interesting guy. I, I think the next step is, and maybe this is a, a way to ask you about if you've noticed any changes um, in terms of tactics or strategy under John Schneider is, are we going to see this guy run at any point? He's only got six stolen base attempts on the year. Yeah, that's another thing where you where you see him and his sprint speed's pretty good. You expect, I wonder about the base running instincts. Like I do think mm. somebody, like the, those are the things that you really, you almost don't even pick up in one year. Like they almost take a couple of years to learn. Like we, it took us a couple of years to learn that, hey, Kevin Biggio is a really good uh, base runner, not just in stealing bases, but taking the extra base. Mm-hmm. Um, same with Bo, even a couple of years. So I do and, wonder and now about Matt the base Chapman, running first to home. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. No, 100%. And by, then, by the yeah, way, sorry, just I, I don't want to interrupt you, but I, I had been saving this and didn't have a time to do it because it happened over the weekend when I didn't have a show. Uh, I looked it up. So that <laughs> that is the one base runner hit state that baseball reference doesn't track. Like you can go and you can see that Rymel Tapia goes first to third on a single and second to home on a single yeah, that's right. better than most people in all of baseball. Um, the Matt Chapman scoring from first on a single, even in a hit and run scenario, that was only the fifth time it's happened in baseball this year. Yeah, and that was a pretty cool. That was another like one of those like I just feel like John Schneider can't do anything wrong right now <laughs> with, with the calls that he's making. But I just to close the book on Tapia, I do think the one other part that we're not discussing that like for him to take another leap is the fielding metrics still don't like him. Yeah. And again, fielding metrics again, small sample. You can't necessarily judge them on face, but I think this is one where the eye test matches what the numbers are telling us. I do think, especially as Springer gets older, I think they do envision him or at least are hopeful that he can kind of take on some of that center field burden, especially with the bat. If the bat's going to play like this, you want him there. But I do think his jumps, his reads, all that stuff, his dependability, they just, everything needs to ratchet up just a little bit in terms of that can take him from being a kind of, fill in and play 10 or 15 or 20 games in center versus, Hey, can you play 50 or 60 games in center? Yeah. And that's, you know, that wouldn't be as big a deal. I don't think if the fourth outfielder on this team wasn't expected to fill in for George Springer pretty often and looking, you know, future wise, like Springer's long-term future is probably in right field at some point if, or, you know, it's always going to be the split time center field DH thing. So that's the, that's the tough part here is you've got top you up to where, I think offensively and at least his defense and left, you're really happy with that guy as a fourth outfielder, um, especially again, being a lefty, but longer term. And this is, this is so far down the list of things the Jays need to address in the next week. Um, Yeah. Like you would like to not have to carry Bradley Zimmer just as a center field replacement at times. Um, Last thing on the, the offense clicking as it did, as it has. And 
this is somewhat related to Bradley Zimmer. With how that top 12, or we could say top 11, since Zach Collins never actually really plays, um, with how steady they've been, like I know you said, like basically, if it's not Juan Soto or someone who's like really, really meaningful, you're going all the assets and all the energy are toward the pitching side this next week, right? Correct. Yeah, I I really don't see who who are the left-handed bats or switch hitters. I know it made sense when they were going after Jose Ramirez. It makes complete sense if Juan Soto becomes available at a reasonable cost. It makes sense if you can somehow get Shohei Otani at an unreasonable cost. What whatever those those two names or the name in the offseason Ramirez made sense. But the other guys, I, I just don't see it. The way Biggio and Tapia are performing, the way your current hitters are performing. And the catcher situation. Is, like, are you taking exactly. Kirk out of the lineup more to get Josh Bell plate appearances? I don't exactly. think so. Yeah, I for me, it's focus all your efforts on two lights out relievers and maybe a depth starter. That's that's the way I would chase it. Um, Just quickly, because I know I only got a couple minutes left with you. Are there any names in that? reliever bin or cheap starter bin that stand out to you as like, obviously we all know who the good names are. We all want Pablo Lopez. It sounds like I'm actually succeeding in speaking this into existence because the Marlins kind of put out the leak today that everyone other than uh, Sandy Alcantara is available. Um, But are there any names that stand out to you as, huh, given what I've seen from this front office in the past, that guy makes sense to me. Oh, Lopez definitely does. Like okay. I, anyone who, any starter with one more year of control or multiple years, that seems to fit into their profile. For me, I, they're going to be in the reliever market. We know that. Just as a personal preference thing, I don't love the idea of getting uh, set up guys from non-contending teams. Mm. I just don't feel like they've been in enough leverage to all of a sudden throw them into a pennant race, like to pull a, to pull a reliever, a setup guy from Pittsburgh, and all of a sudden be pitching in Yankee Stadium in the seventh inning or eighth inning, I don't love that, that idea. Um, so for me, the the list or the leaderboard that kind of jumped out at me was if you go into baseball reference, you go into their relievers page, they have an average leverage index. So the amount of leverage that uh, every reliever had when they came in. The leader, number one, not surprising to a lot of Jays fans, Jordan Romano. The other guy, two other guys in the top five, they're not going anywhere. Josh Hader, Ryan Presley. There's three other guys in that top six, sorry, I should say. David Robertson, Daniel Bard, and Tanner Rainey. Like, to me, those are guys who are at least closing. Even though they're on non-contending teams, they've been closing. So they've been in leverage. Those are the guys that, I, those are the three guys that I just like the idea of going to get. Obviously, these aren't like low-level guys. A lot of teams are going to be going after them. But that's just how the... Those are the types of guys I'd want to go after. Guys who, if they're on non-contending teams, have at least been in some serious leverage. And the other name I'd add to that, he's not a free agent, but I do like the idea the Tigers uh, came in and said that they're open to moving a lot of people. I like the idea of Soto, Gregory Soto. Yeah. Like, he, he throws pure gas from the left side. And especially and yes, if you're worried control. about the Mesa drop-off the last little yes. while. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. I, I, I honestly think Detroit's here this weekend. If they just left one or two relievers here, I'd be more than fine with that. I, I yeah, I was I made that joke through text to somebody else uh, a couple of days ago. Oh, but, someone yeah, more big time than me, eh? Oh, no, I think no, that's no. I, I have no big time friends. Um, 
yeah, like that's that's the series that I'm going to be watching closely. I think a move, this is purely just from a fan watching, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if a move came together between those two teams. We're on full hug watch this weekend with the Detroit Tigers uh, in Toronto for four and clear sellers. Um, really, really quickly, Chris, Jose Brios back on the hill tonight. Four solid to great starts in a row. Shai Davidi wrote a piece on this, so I'm going to talk to Shai about that a lot more at six o'clock. Um, but We've ten- we tend to talk about, like, the dogma is usually your fastball being effective sets up the other stuff. I think the big takeaway so far from the Jose Brios up and down is that he's kind of the opposite. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be quick on this. I'll let Shai handle most of it. But the biggest thing is this July, he's been the best pitcher on the Blue Jays. He's been a top 25 pitcher in Major League Baseball. And it happens to correspond with him using his fastball less than he ever has in his entire career. He's under 50% fastballs. He's 48%. That's the lowest of his career. And his breaking ball has been unbelievable. His break, all his breaking ball numbers, uh, average against, expected average, expected slugging, expected weighted on base, whiff rate, all those, all his numbers for his breaking ball this month, also the best of his career. So he's throwing fastballs less than he ever has, and it hasn't made his breaking ball any less effective. So I think if he continues doing this, he'll continue being successful. All right. Well, we'll see you tonight. We'll see if he drops that thing in a bunch because it's uh, when that when that curveball is snapping, he is so much fun to watch. Uh, we'll see that tonight. 707 first pitch. Ben Wagner and Arden Zwelling on the Sportsnet Radio Network. And then the return of Buck Martinez on the TV side. Chris, enjoy the rest of your vacation. Thanks for taking the time out, man, and enjoy the game tonight. See you later, Blake. Chris Black, producer at Sportsnet, uh, at Down to Black on Twitter uh, for all your Jays stats and video threads. And tennis, if you're a tennis fan, Chris shifts over to uh, tennis uh, soon. And my pal Crino will be helping him out with some of the stuff behind the scenes. Uh, so looking forward to that. Let's take a break. When we come back, we have to dive into, with Katie Wu of The Athletic, we don't need to overdo the, oh, players aren't, are on the restricted list and not coming to Toronto thing, but there is quite a story about the hoops Johan Oviedo jumped through to make sure he was here for this series. Uh, I want to talk to Katie about that, and we'll tee up this little two-game series with a team that's in a similar spot in the standings to the Blue Jays. Katie Wu on the Cardinals is next on Jays Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That is Murphy Lee. We got to do a little welcome to St. Louis as we welcome Katie Wu, Cardinals beat writer for The Athletic. Katie, how are you? Blake, I just absolutely love that intro. I feel like I'm suited up and ready to go play in the game myself. Great job. Perfect. It, Murphy Lee is uh, not well appreciated in the like annals of late 90s, early 2000s hip hop, but he has that one for us. And the verse on batter up with Nelly uh, and Ali where, you know, he, he strikes the baseball court at least. 
Right. And hey, two St. Louis legends there with Nelly, of course. So okay. I'll, I'll give the intro a solid 8.5 out of 10. Sweet. Thank you. I, uh, yeah, I tried to, I tried to do the, the Sosa song that I know you've tweeted about before saying it's a Edmund Sosa song. Uh, very, very hard to find a clean version of, of that Chief Keith song, unfortunately. Yes, one might say nearly impossible, but I appreciate the effort, certainly. <laughs> Thanks, Katie. Uh, speaking of effort, so we obviously have to touch on the Paul Goldschmidt, Nolan Arenado, and a couple others not being here because they're on the restricted list, but um, Jeff Jones of Belleville News tweeted out shortly before you came on here that Johan Oviedo, who we didn't expect to be available for the Cardinals in this series because his passport had been has had expired and he'd been trying to get it renewed since January. Um, He went Cincinnati to Miami to the Canadian consulate to get his passport, then flew Miami to Detroit and then drove to Toronto. And there's a quote here for, from him. I wouldn't forgive myself if I had one chance to be with the team and not take it. That is some pretty heavy shade toward his two superstar teammates, right? Look, I mean, what Oviedo had to go through, I know they're entirely different circumstances, but being a, a native of Cuba and the obstacles he's had to to hop through to get his passport, I certainly understand why he felt the, the need to be there. But I think while it is certainly glaring for the Cardinals to not have Paul, Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arnado, they're two, inarguably, they're two best players. Those are two established superstars where Johan Oviedo is fighting for a roster spot every time mm-hmm. there is one that's necessary. So a little bit different circumstances, but you can surely draw some parallels there, especially when you take into consideration how dedicated Goldschmidt and Arnado are to not miss any games, to play in every day. They play through health issues. I mean, Arnado played with the bad back for almost the entirety of June and July. So it's certainly, I think, fair to question their absence and given the circumstances, but I think it is a little bit different to compare the situations with those two versus Johan Oviedo. For sure. And, and you know, the Arenado part is disappointing for, I'm sure, not just me, the baseball fans here in general. We don't get to see the Cardinals all that often. And Nolan Arenado is a superstar, right? And uh, man, and also, if anyone has ever got a boost from changing uniforms, like physically, he looks so much cooler in a Cardinals uniform, um, but they won't be here. And, and I, I, we were talking on Twitter earlier and I kind of said, I don't want to dig too much into the Goldschmidt Arenado decision because this has been a story every time a new team comes to Toronto. However, I do want to get your perspective on the Cardinals are two games back in the division and only a game up on the final wildcard spot. It's just two games, air quotes, but those could be pretty, two pretty big games in the grand scheme. Like, is, do you think there was some pushback or, or some disappointment internally with those decisions, given how important every game feels to St. Louis right now? I don't know if, if pushback or disappointment are the right words. I do know that there were conversations held by President of Baseball Operations John Mazalock in the front office and just trying to present as much information as they could to make sure the athletes essentially were comfortable with the choice that they made. But when you do say it's just two games in air quotes, it obviously can, can factor into so much more for the reasons you described. I mean, this is a team that has aspirations of not just winning the division, but beyond. They've played a brutal stretch of baseball. July certainly hasn't been their month. They're without many key players. Harrison Bader is out. Yadier Molina is out. Jack Flaherty is out. Steven Matz just tore his MCL over the weekend in his first start back from the IL. They're constantly missing their best guys and have done that. I mean, Tyler O'Neill missed most of the first half with various injuries as well. 
So when you look at how the standings are shaping up in the final two months of the season, obviously every game counts and no one's going to tell you otherwise. And I think what makes this kind of unknown and a tricky situation is no, we won't know how impactful these two games are until we get to the end of September, until we get to those last few games in October. There's really no way to tell. Now, if the Cardinals go into the end of September surging and two games don't make a difference, well, then does the series carry as much weight? Probably not. However, if they're fighting down to the wire and it comes, the division comes down between one and two games, I would certainly imagine the narrative reflects back to the series as in what would have happened if Paul Goldschmidt and Leonardo played in these two games. Whether or not that's fair, I don't know per se, but it is certainly, I think, a point that will be taken either way coming to the end of the season. I'll tell you, the Jays missed the playoffs by one game last year and Marcus Semien's one year in Toronto is like, it's got to be not too far behind Kawhi Leonard in terms of how much a fan base loved a guy who was only here for a year. He comes third in MVP voting. And one error he had in a late August game against the Detroit Tigers is like the first, the, the, maybe not the first, but the second thing people mentioned about Semyon's one year here. So um, that's definitely a factor. So you meant you went through a lot of the names who are out. So in addition to Goldschmidt and Arenado and Austin Romine, um, Bader, Yadi and Molina are also out. They've called up Herrera, Spang, Berg and, and Capel, are, are we expecting anything from those guys, or is it kind of just those guys are triage bench unit, and we're going to see the more, you know, we're just going to see everyone kind of move up a slot or two? We may have lost uh, Katie there, or I just asked a really bad question, and she didn't want to talk about it. That's fine. Um, none of the players that the Cardinals have called up or um, selected from the minors are particularly notable. None of them are even in the lineup today. Um, while we wait to reconnect with Katie, uh, the Cardinals lineup against Jose Barrios will go uh, Tommy Edmond, Der- Dylan Carlson, Tyler O'Neill, Albert Pujols, Brandon Donovan, Nolan Gorman, Corey Dickerson, Lars Nootbar, and Andrew Neisner. Um, Katie, the, this is still not a bad lineup I would say there are a lot of interesting names there but this is a team that had cooled off a little bit over the last month or so and hasn't hit righties as well as lefties how big a drop off are is the version of the Cardinals the Jays are seeing these two games I think it's an immense drop off I mean there's no way that you can really replace players like Goldschmidt who's the front runner for the National League MVP and Arenado, who's honestly not that far behind him I think it kind of puts the pressure on guys like Tommy Edmond who has been Everything the Cardinals have asked for him this season and more. And oh, We lost uh, Katie again. We'll try one more time as we go through that. One of the things that I want to um, pick her brain on is whether the absence of Nolan Arenado has an outsized effect on Andre Pallante, who will pitch tonight, because Andre Pallante is the ground ball guy. I've got some fun stats to go through in our 630 block as we tee up the game um, about Palante's fastball and his ability to induce ground balls. And it's pretty remarkable. Now you go from Nolan Arenado, one of the best defensive third basemen in the world to Brendan Donovan. And maybe that looks a little different. Jays fans have certainly noticed the difference between going from a BGO Espinal platoon at third to Matt Chapman every day. And Espinal was a quality third baseman, but Matt Chapman is on another level. He's, you know, Nolan Arenado level of defense at third base. So um, that'll be an interesting thing for the Cardinals to navigate. Katie mentioned our old pal, Stephen Matz there, 
Torres MCL in his first game back. It's tough. Uh, it doesn't sound like anyone really knows yet if he'll be back this season at all, which is, uh, you know, it's unfortunate. You want to see guys who move on from the team uh, do well. Uh, we are joined once again by Katie. Katie, how are we doing? We're, we're hanging in there. There has been some very sketch weather in St. Louis, uh, up to 10 inches of flooding today. So Whoa. maybe that is the, yes, it's been, it's been a little insane. Maybe that plays into the, the connectivity issues I'm having here. That's all right. We'll, we'll, we'll make our way through. Um, so I, I mentioned while we were reconnecting with you that uh, an interesting element, to me at least, of Nolan Arenado not being here tonight is Andre Pallante is such a strong ground ball pitcher, and that fastball has so much sink to it. No one can really get in the air. Um, how much less effective are we expecting that to be with, say, a Brandon Donovan behind him at third base instead of literally Nolan Arenado, like the the guy you want behind a ground ball pitcher at third? Yeah, I think that can be said both to, to Nolan's absence and Paul's absence. I mean, these are two gold glove winners last year, corner infielders, staples in the, in the defensive lineup. Cardinals are known for having some of the best defense in baseball year after year. 2021 certainly was no exception with their five gold gloves. 2022, even with some rookies like Donovan and Nolan Gorman, that defense is pretty solid. There's a reason the Cardinals like to emphasize and highlight ground ball pitchers like Pallante and Steven Matz before he was injured and <laughs> Dakota Hudson. It's because the weak ground ball plays, especially when you have a defensive seller behind them. So, look, Brendan Donovan, I think third base is probably his strongest position. He obviously doesn't get a lot of reps there because Nolan Arenado is usually in the starting lineup. But I will say that it does put Pallante at a little bit of a disadvantage because he relies on that weak ground ball contact so heavily in the defense behind him to really pick him up. So it'll be certainly something that he's navigating through his start today. Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch, especially he's coming off of a couple shakier ones after such a great start to uh, his season. So that's something to watch. Um, you mentioned Stephen Matz and him tearing his MCL. Obviously, a guy who had a really nice season here for the Blue Jays. Things weren't working out quite as well in St. Louis, although a lot of the underlying indicators were like, oh, Matz is just getting kind of unlucky. Like, he stopped walking guys. He's striking out more guys. What does this do to the Cardinals rotation from here? And I know the Cardinals have been a hot potential landing spot for Juan Soto. Do they maybe have to look at pitching first before they look at the hitting side of things heading into the deadline? I personally don't see how the Cardinals can go into the trade deadline and not make a move for starting pitching. They okay. are pitching with a four-man rotation through the next couple of weeks thanks to a favorable strength of schedule in Adam Wainwright, Miles Michaelis, Pallante, and Dakota Hudson, who's expected to be activated off the IL by the next series. That's certainly not sustainable. They can get away with it right now thanks to some forgiving timing, but that's definitely not something they can roll out throughout the rest of the season. There is no... Real update on Steven Matz. The Cardinals are going to give him about a week he, to, after tearing his MCL. Surgery is still on the table, but they're a little optimistic he might be able to avoid that. It's pretty 50-50. If he doesn't have surgery, he's out four to six weeks with the hopes that rest and recovery will heal. If he does need surgery, he's obviously out for the season. That could not be more brutal timing for a Cardinals team that's already without Jack Flaherty again until the end of August at the earliest. I understand why the Cardinals have been linked to Juan Soto. I certainly feel like they have some of the best depth to offer in all of baseball. But I just, unless Juan Soto suddenly learns a, I don't know, pretty lethal fastball, I pr I'm pretty <laughs> sure that the Cardinals' first emphasis here is going to be starting pitching simply because they don't have any. Well, this is where uh, we keep uh, me and some of our regular guests. So just like, well, Shohei Otani addresses, addresses both, right? You get a starter and uh, a big lefty bat to drop in there. Um, 
the Juan Soto thing is fascinating, though, because the Cardinal strategy for so long has been, you know, we can if we can get stars, we're so good at producing the next Harrison Bader or the next, um, you know, pick your pick your guy who slides in there, Carlson, whoever. Um, they're kind of a factory for the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh best player on your team kind of guys. Do you? I know you just said you'd ha- you'd lean towards starting pitching, you'd prioritize starting pitching, but do you see a scenario where a Juan Soto framework plays out over the next week? I would be more willing to see that if the Cardinals somehow or the Nationals somehow threw in Patrick Corbin in that deal and ate a significant amount of their contract. I think the Cardinals would happily take that. Look, I know Patrick Corbin has been one of the worst statistically produce or productive pitchers in baseball this year, but he's a left-handed ground ball guy that induces weak contact. Does that sound familiar from something <laughs> I just described? Uh, he perfectly kind of fits that profile. He's a veteran with postseason appearances in which he was quite dominant. He's less than three. And we have lost Katie again, as she was giving us the gospel of Patrick Corbin. Um, we might just be out of luck with that one, with the the tough situation in St. Louis uh, right now in Katie's connection issue, but that's a lot of good information. And, and Katie, if you want to know more about um, the potential Cardinals fit for Juan Soto, and yeah, this is a Jays show, but um, you know, Juan Soto is one of the best players of baseball and a generational hitting talent. Uh, and if he's going to get traded, I think as a Blue Jay fan, you at least hope he goes to an NL team. So maybe you're more interested in uh, him landing on like if you. If you're working under the assumption he will not be traded to the Toronto Blue Jays, then, yeah, you would love for him to land on a a different National League team. And the Cardinals are a pretty fascinating fit. Katie had a piece at The Athletic the other day that went into kind of the the arguments to make for the Cardinals, cashing in a lot of prospect capital for Juan Soto, and the case for them not to do it, um, which is basically the same case anyone makes when, you know, you're dealing a ton, a ton, a ton of prospect capital for a player that you're going to then have to pay significantly. Um, But again, it's not that it's not worth it for Juan Soto, pretty much any packages, but to Katie's point, this is now a team that's down to not many starting pitching options. Steven Matz done for the year, Jack Flaherty out. They've got Adam Wainwright, which is cool. They've got miles Michaelis, which is cool. And then like, we're going to tee up Andre Pallante in the second hour of the show He's had a fun season, and the ground ground ball profile is really interesting. He was a bullpen arm a couple weeks ago, and he's now their number three starter, at least until Hudson comes off the IL uh, in a little bit here. So things are in disarray there a little bit. So maybe maybe Soto doesn't end up going to St. Louis. Maybe they're the the more interesting wrinkle then for the blue jays becomes are the cardinals a team you're bidding against for starting pitching help on the market we'll see how that plays out um let's take a look through that lineup again i read out the cardinals lineup but i did it really quickly while we were reconnecting with katie so um here is how the cardinals lineup against jose barrios tonight be tommy Edmond leading off dylan carlson tyler o'neill our guy hitting third, playing left field. A bit of a down year for him. He had that huge breakout year last year with 34 homers, 15 stolen bases, hit not too shy of 300. He's having a tough go this year. Um, He's always had a a little bit of trouble staying on the field. Um, You know, he's only played in 51 games this year and the power hasn't quite been there. You really hope he 
picks things up starting Thursday. Uh, that would be a really nice outcome there. So he will play left and hit third. Albert Pujols will back clean up. Obviously, that's a, a really fun set of games for a lot of these young Blue Jays who grew up, uh, you know, idolizing Pujols really. Um, you know, we've heard from several of the Dominican-born players on the Blue Jays and Latin American players in general. And any honestly, anyone who's just a baseball fan, like you could, I'm sure you could ask Bo Bichette and Kevin Biccio, like, hey, how cool is it to get to play against this guy that you probably watched in person a handful of times when you were a kid? It's it's amazing. So, Pool, so I'm getting... I'm getting tangential about the lineup here. So Edmund Carlson, O'Neill, Pujols, Brandon Donovan at third base, filling in for Nolan Gorman. All right, sorry, filling in for uh, Nolan Arenado. Nolan Gorman hits sixth and plays second. Corey Dickerson, our old pal, will DH, the one guy with a notable sample against Jose Brios, and he's hammered Brios. Lars Newtbar plays right field, and then Andrew Nitzner at catcher uh, again we'll go into the matchups a little bit more on the 630 block you can also send us some questions for the 630 block uh, you can text us at 590 590 or you can tweet at me at blake murphy odc and we'll uh we'll go through some of those as well as teeing the game up but quickly before we take a break here and bring shy davidi in here is how the blue jays will line up against andre palante george springer vladimir guerrero jr with the old dh day alejandro kirk catches and hits third Bo Bichette at short. So again, Springer, Guerrero, Kirk, Bichette. We're sticking with that uh, until we're not, it seems like. And things are clicking right now. Teoscar Hernandez and Lourdes Gurriel Jr. follow. Matt Chapman at third. Santiago Espinal at second. And Kevin Biggio draws in and plays first base. So this is, you know, that top eight isn't going to change too, too often. The only difference today is Biggio comes in for Jansen because it's a Kirk catching day. And then Vlad gets a DH day. As a result, should be a very fun one. The Jays are larger favorites than you would maybe expect because the Cardinals are a pretty good team. But again, this is a Cardinals team that they're the number eight offense in baseball, but they've been they've hammered lefties and just been a little above average on righties. They've been just a little above average over the last 30 days, and they are missing two players who have already combined for 10 wins above replacement this year and are probably both five, both top five in MVP validating right now in Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt. So uh, the Jays come in at minus 240 favorites, which is a significant line. We've seen the Jays be a little overvalued at times this year uh, on those lines. So do with that what you will. Um, but it does speak to kind of the market confidence in the Jays keeping this streak rolling. Part of that will rely on Jose Brios continuing to pitch as he pitched the last four games where he's been solid at worst and back to being Brios at best. Shai Davidi had a piece go up at sportsite.ca today called titled Blue Jays Brios believes he has found his game and not a moment too soon. Depending on what the Blue Jays do at the trade deadline, let's say they don't add a starter or they only add, you know, a back end type. Like you're taught your your Jose Quintana's or your Chad Cools of the world. A guy who you're not starting in a wild card game, you're you're pretty certain of already. You are set with Alec Manoa and Kevin Gosman, one, two. If the Jays don't add another mid to high end rotation piece. Jose Barrios become your most important swing player the rest of the way because 
he would be the guy starting a third game in a three-game wildcard series. And, I mean, you need you could really use Jose Brios to be good the rest of the year just to get to the playoffs. But that third starter slot is a big one if you look ahead to, like, the Jays aren't winning the division. They're not catching up 13 games over the last uh, 65 or so games here, 67 games, whatever the number is. Um, you're probably playing in a wildcard series, and you really like your chances with Gossman and Manoa. But it's not as if those guys are undefeated and the Jays are undefeated when those guys pitch. You'll want a third. And even if you swept it, then your number three guys start in game one of the next round. And you probably don't want that to be a Ross Stripling-led bullpen day. Um, Not that Stripling hasn't been terrific, but he's been terrific in a defined role and defined leash, we'll say. So Jose Brios' stacking up is pretty important. We'll talk to Shai Davidi after the break about what has clicked for Jose Brios and whether we believe it more that it's here to stay than whatever clicked for him over those couple starts where he looked back to form in early June. Shai Davidi next on Jay's Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan. Jay's Talk Plus. Happy Tuesday. I'm Blake Murphy. The Toronto Blue Jays back in action tonight. Winners of eight of their last nine. The best offensive baseball over that stretch. Things are clicking. Big test today. Were things clicking because the Boston Red Sox were booting every ball all over Fenway Park? Or the Jays just that locked in? Uh, They won't get the full strength St. Louis Cardinals to test that against. 7.07 first pitch tonight. Ben Wagner and Arden Zwelling on the call for you on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Uh, on the TV side, we'll see the return of Buck Martinez. Joining us now to talk about that and Jose Brios getting the start tonight of Sportsnet. Shai Davidi, how are you, buddy? I'm all right. What's going on? Not much. Fired up for this game. It, it feels, despite the Cardinals' absences, like a, like a big one. And I think the return of, of Buck Martinez is a pretty big part of that. How how exciting is that to, to see him back around the, the field in the stadium today? It was great. I was walking uh, down the hallway with Jeff Blair, and we happened to run into him before uh, we saw him on the field. And uh, he just looked, uh, he was dressed out, decked out in his suit. He had the big smile, the big booming voice, and it was just so nice to to see that again. It's just like a comforting feeling, right, where it's like it's uh, somebody who's important to you that you haven't seen in a long time. And it was just, uh, it was great. And he says he's feeling well he sounds great looks great and uh we're excited to have him back yeah the hair not a hair out of place as you'd expect from uh from buck um so shy i want to get into brios a lot but i want to hit on a couple other things quickly with you um i know you tweeted out the the list and the the jays put it out the jays signed 18 of the draft picks and a couple of undrafted free agents today um I haven't gotten to do a ton of draft stuff on the show because uh, I was off for a couple of days for the all-star break right after the draft. But the general sense I've gotten is that 
People seem pretty impressed with the top four the Jays came away with here and how they balanced the budgets uh, to make all four of those signable. Is that the feeling internally as well, that that Sunday to Tuesday went about as well as they could have hoped? Yeah, you know, the I was just talking to someone about this a couple minutes ago, and the person was saying that they, they had Tucker Toman uh, way higher than they ended up getting him, and they were pretty pleasantly surprised uh, that they could get him where they did. Uh, they had a lot of confidence there. There's some... Uh, relationship too, because uh, Tucker Tolman's dad and uh, Anthony uh, Tony Lacava, uh, who's uh, you know assistant general manager who works uh, closely with the scouting uh, scouting staff, uh, they have uh, some history together, so that probably helped create some inroads there. But you know that's a player they believe has some upside. You know uh, Barriera, the first rounder, they thought has a chance to to drop to them, and that ended up playing out. Uh, Kay Doughty. Uh, is a guy who, you know, has a lot of. Uh, I mean, he built himself a reputation for being this really, really clutch player at LSU. Uh, just being able to not get phased by any moment, whether whether it was a leverage points in, in a ball game, and to deliver big hits. And so, you know, you always like guys with that kind of uh, a reputation to come up. So, uh, a pretty good crop of, of players for them. And look, again, everybody's always happy with hmm. the draft right afterwards. Uh, once you start getting guys into your system and they start getting tested, that's where the real evaluation begins. But from a process standpoint, it sounds like the Blues are pretty pleased with how things went. What a crop. What a crop. Um, <laughs> another news item before we dig in on Burrios. Uh, Yusei Kikuchi threw a side session today at Rogers Center. Uh, it's possible he starts in this Detroit series, that is the worst offense in the league. So a nice landing spot. Um, what do you think of the potential choice between, do you bump them all the way to Saturday? So you go as far as possible without using him. And, and then maybe you can skip him again sometime soon or lining them up Thursday. So he's between Gosman and Manoa, where if you're worried about him having a short outing, at least you got your, your studs on either side of him. Yeah, that, that's certainly uh, a piece to this. Uh, I also think that when you look at where Alec Manoa is right now, that thrown a lot of innings, he had the all-star break, he didn't really get any, or pitched in the all-star game, he didn't get any downtime during the break. You know, this is a way to give him an extra day and a, a little bit of rest, but then you've got all the other factors at play too. And so it seems like a reasonable spot to have that landing or to put him back in. And one way or the other, like you're going to get him either Thursday or Saturday. And so to be able to insulate him between, you know, the two guys that you can most count on to get deep into a game seems like a pretty logical thing to me. It does to me as well. Um, the the bigger question, I guess, that I still have, and I'm sure the Jays have too, is, um, you know, he, he went on the IL. He got that fairly effective rehab start in, although he did walk a couple guys over those first two innings. Um, what happens here if he comes back and it isn't effective and it's not working? Yeah, I mean, that's really the million-dollar question at this point. But, you know, the, the Jays aren't necessarily stocked with options. We'll see. The trade deadline is coming up, and so maybe something shakes out there and, you know, creates some flexibility. Max Castillo is still around, but, you know, the longer that he goes without pitching a bunch of innings, uh, the less fair it becomes to ask him to go out and, you know, give you five or six. So there's certainly some challenges there. Uh, but I think they've got to see, right? And I, I get that people are going to say this because, 
you know, they're invested in him and they've got all these reasons in the world to say this, but I do think there's a genuine belief there that they, they've got a chance to figure this out with him and that they believe in the talent and the ability. And we've seen it in flashes and when he's good, he's quite good. The problem is that there just hasn't been that middle ground with him. He's either really good or really bad. Whereas I think if the blue Jays could get on a consistent basis, say five innings and four runs or six innings, five runs. And that was the, the median, you know, they would take that in a heartbeat. Uh, and so it's really just trying to get him to that point. But, you know, if it doesn't go well, you are stuck to a certain degree with him, and that's going to be a problem. And this is a tough time of year to not have that certainty in your fourth or fifth starter slot because the deadline's a week away. And so you wrote this piece about Jose Brios today, and I got to thinking, man, like, let's say the Jays, let's play out the hypothetical where if the Jays add a starter, it's more in the stripling Kikuchi tier. Like, it'll be someone who's filling in the 4-5 the role, not someone higher in the rotation. We know what Manoa and Gosman look like. We know that 12 and a half games back, the division's probably not in reach and you're going to have to play a three-game series. Does Jose Barrios suddenly become maybe not the most important player on the team, but the biggest swing piece the rest of the way of if you can get this guy going, it's huge. And if you can't, you're in trouble. You know, it's really interesting because as I was writing that piece and I went through his game log, and it's interesting how much the, the, the six rough outings he's had can skew the perception of his season. And look, it's a significant chunk, and I'm not going to try to minimize that. But he's actually been, for the most part, good more often than he hasn't been. But if they smooth that out, and it's you know, the Barrios who, over, over uh, 13 starts, has been excellent to, to very good, then it's absolutely a swing piece for them because they, even though they're 19, uh, 14, excuse me, 14 and five in his 19 starts, you know, they've had to really grind uh, to, and rely on the offense to get a bunch of those victories. And if he starts winning a lot more of those two, one, three, one, four, two kind of games, and is consistently giving them innings, it's an absolute game changer for them because yeah, you can lock him into a three game series and, you know, good luck to teams finding a, a better front three than, you know, Barrios, Gosman, and Manoa. Yeah, so you're right. You're right. That's a, 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 it is a major swing, but I think we should also take a step back and realize that he's had a few starts where it's gone bad, but his season isn't necessarily as bad as the numbers look. Yeah, it, it hasn't felt as bad. Like, it, I think it's pretty telling that the concern level and the what do you do about this guy with Yusei Kikuchi has been more extreme, even though Brios' ERA is a little higher. Um, I think that's a, that's a telling thing about how their seasons have felt. Um, so in this piece you wrote for sportsnet.ca, and again, great pregame reading for anyone who hasn't checked it out yet. Brios believes he's found his game and not a moment too soon. Um, what is it? that he's found what's clicked for him these last couple starts um, that wasn't clicking before. It's it, it, in his words, it's about rhythm and we can translate that a little bit more, but rhythm is just the body movement and how he's able to get into his delivery and using his athleticism and not 
you know, trying to do different things, which he has over the course of the season, where he's really just allowing the muscle memory to do a lot of the work. And he's had periods this year where his arm slot hasn't been right. It's led to some variances in his release point. There was a, a shift on the mound for a period, uh, which if you're looking at the charts, has made some of the variance in his release point look a little bit more extreme, but it's still uh, it, it not indicative of the fact that, or, or excuse me, is more reflective of the fact that he has been trying to find that. And he, over that the, this month of July, the four starts coming into tonight, he feels like he found that rhythm and he found some consistency. And if you look at, again, if you look at some of the data points, it suggests that it, yeah, that's happening, that his breaking ball has been better, his changeup has been better. He's throwing, in, uh, throwing those pitches into the same lanes, which allow them to be more effective and allows them to be more deceptive than they were at different points of the season. And so if he's able to maintain that kind of rhythm, essentially, then he'll be able to be the best version of himself. And that's what the Blue Jays, as we were just discussing, really need. Uh, and if that's the springboard for him, uh, then maybe maybe he's found it, and maybe this is the turning point. Do you have a little bit of hesitance, um, as I do, that, like, I, I thought this was the case when he had those three starts in early June as well, where he was missing every bat imaginable and, you know, career high in strikeouts and stuff like that. It, did you get, were you able to dig into, okay, what's different this time? Why Why are you feeling more comfortable with this strong stretch and the last strong stretch? You know, I didn't get into that with him, but I, even back then, he it still felt at times like he didn't, he wasn't as, I would say, con, convinced that he was through it, right? He wasn't speaking about it with the same level of confidence. Over the weekend in Boston, when he threw a, a side there, you know, he said to Pete Walker afterwards, he's like, what I was doing is I just want to keep that going. I want to maintain this. And I didn't hear him say stuff like that. It doesn't mean he didn't necessarily feel it. But, you know, the other thing that, you know, Pete Walker mentioned is, like, maybe there have been points this season where, you know, he hasn't necessarily felt the best physically, and maybe that impacted him. He went through the dead arm that started in Anaheim where mm. uh, all kinds of alarm bells were raised. You know, so perhaps that's a factor there. But, you know, ultimately, we can only go by what he says, and we'll see whether the results play out. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to it, and I think this is uh, a St. Louis Cardinals team with no Goldschmidt or Arenado is, uh, and further down the the list, no Bader, no Yadier Molina. It's not a bad spot to see just how uh, just how well things are feeling and how things are looking. Chai, I know I've only got a minute with you left here before you uh, you go off to do some TV stuff, um, but we're a week out from the trade deadline here. Do you have a general feeling of if the Jays are close on anything or if it's still kind of feeling out the market mode at this stage? It still feels like it's the exploratory stage, but, you know, that can always move pretty quickly too. But I think this year is going to be different because you've got the extra playoff teams. You've got way more clubs who are still either in the playoff race or with a decision to make or unclear about their status. And so I really feel like it's going to be a seller's market for, for the time being. And there are going to be some teams who play it out right to the end. And you keep having 
even little injuries or little events that happen that are, you know, changing the market. The Yankees losing Michael King over the weekend, for instance. That, that's going to, I'm certain, push them more aggressively into the reliever market. And, you know, a motivated Yankees team is going to definitely change that market. So it feels like stuff is still fluid right now. The Juan Soto situation is hanging over everything to some degree as well. It just feels like this might be a market that even more so than usual might go right up to the deadline. Now, having said that, you did say things can change pretty quickly. The Tigers are here for four on the weekend. Do you maybe just like make sure a guy doesn't go home, just like hide his hide his bags or something like that? Uh, Tigers, one of the teams, a, a lot of the, the lesser teams have the odd reliever or two, um, but the Tigers especially stand out, and we'll get a good look at them this weekend. Do you think that that helps maybe, or, or is it just kind of curious timing is all? Are you suggesting that yeah, the, the there's a Gregory Soto jersey in the in the Blue Jays clubhouse right now, and that they're just saying, hey, just when you're here, you can pick it up and just uh, we'll keep you here. Look, I would settle uh, for any Soto at this point. It doesn't matter which Soto. Uh, I'd be fine with a, a Joe Jimenez as well. That's a that's a guy yeah. with a, a big strikeout to walk uh, ratio and a, a pretty good. You know, maybe not the the best fly ball rate, but another guy who misses enough bats to work around that. I just the Tigers are the one bad team in the AL where I'm like, huh? You actually have good pit. Like the Orioles were that team, and then they they're not a bad team anymore. Right. No, it, it's that that would be very very uh, interesting timing. Uh, obviously, that's not going to be a factor if the time. But it sounds like the Tigers are very much open for business on uh, on everybody, which makes it. Uh, uh, quite an interesting pre-scout series for them. And, you know, as Arden and Ben uh, will make fun of me for, uh, they'll, I, I've long been an advocate for Robbie Grossman. I think that that's, a, that's an interesting type of piece. I do, I do think in an ideal world, the Blue Jays can find uh, a, a left-handed bat who can play center field on a regular basis uh, in the event they need that in case something happens to George Springer. Yeah, Tyler Naquin fits into that mold as well. But there are a lot of teams where you can do some one-stop shopping. You think mm-hmm. about the Colorado Rockies, look at Herman Marquez, Daniel Bard, and Charlie Blackman. I mean, that'd, be, uh, that'd be a pretty good place to do some one-stop shopping. You do it with the Reds. Uh, the Tigers are certainly fit that vein as well. Yeah, the Cubs a little bit if you like Ian Happ too. So um, there are some some interesting things there. Look forward to uh, hearing your reporting on it over the next week and, and getting to talk about it with you uh, a little bit more shy. Thanks for taking the time, man. Uh, really enjoyed the Brios piece and, and looking forward to catching you out of the side of my eye on the TV shortly. All right. Appreciate it. Talk soon. Uh, shy Davidi of sportsnet.ca. Again, that piece uh, was called blue Jays. Brios believes he has found his game and not a moment too soon. Uh, interesting look at why he feels things are clicking right now. And again, I expressed the shy. I, I have a little bit of hesitance because we thought that was the case in June. Now, one of the things we didn't get to go as deep with Chris Black earlier on as I maybe thought we would is the the pitch mix stuff. And when Barrios was cruising over those June starts, it looked for a little bit like, oh, the fastball's locating more, and that's what's helping the curveball play off of it uh, a little better. Like, you, you need to, this is the dogma, right? Like, pitching is supposed to be establish the fastball and, and play your, your off speed and your breaking stuff off of it. And it looked like that was the case, but maybe that was the case because that's 
what we expect and what we're what we're trained to look for. Where now you see this more recent stretch, and the more recent stretch has been basically, well, the fastball still hasn't been very effective, so he's just throwing it less and less. As Chris mentioned, this month, July, is the lowest fastball usage Brios has ever had. And the curveball has only gotten more effective. Sometimes you worry. You scale back the fastball usage, and can guys sit on the curve a little bit more, wait on the curve a little bit more? Does it deceive as well if the fastball is not, you know, if you're not as confident and forceful with your fastball? And what we've seen over this small-ish sample with Jose Brios is that hasn't mattered a ton for his curveball. That's an elite pitch regardless. And he's got some runway to use it a little bit more before there are diminishing returns. What's also interesting, and there's an element of how do we work around the the all-star break and the fact that, you know, rest patterns and routines aren't exactly the same in this most recent sample. But we spoke to Eno Saris yesterday about his pitching stuff pitching and stuff metrics and how the 400 most recent pitches are our best predictive sample of of what's going to happen next. And we talked to, you know, about, you know, some of that is trying to quantify or or just trying to capture, you know, how healthy is a guy right now? Um, There's certainly some randomness in there probably, although it being predictive, makes it seem like maybe not. Uh, it's just, it's not, it's not long-term predictive. It's just short-term predictive. So when you look at a guy like Brios, who for a while now has been throwing this curveball effectively, even as the other pitches have kind of gone up and down around that, you really start to get confidence that this guy can be a curveball first guy. And you're almost pitching backwards a little bit as we've seen, a little bit more around baseball this year. We've talked to Eno about that a couple times, actually, where, um, you know, he wrote this thing about a lot of guys using the the slider as a as a three-ball pitch, where guys would normally only use the fastball because it's a better pitch and a lot of guys can locate it well. Um, or we've seen, you know, more pitchers willing to pitch backwards in the traditional sense um, as a means of, of changing the the three-true outcome heaviness that that you know, can be a little tough on a pitcher because it's, uh, you know, it's boom or bust or, or just pitching backwards because hitters are so good and you've, you've got to kind of change the the paradigm. You've got a paradigm shift for you wrestling brain people out there. Um, you've got to change that up a little bit and make hitters think a little bit more. It's, it's part of what's made Ross Stripling so effective this year and especially the way he uses that change up so effective this year. So Brios is an interesting case, not just for his importance to the Jays down the stretch here and potentially as the number three guy in a in a wild card series. But it's a really interesting case as a baseball person. And as you know, if you're someone who loves kind of the art of pitching or the psychology of pitching, or you're into the the stack cast stuff, any way you cut it, you know, a guy pushing the limits of his best pitch in a way that is not completely unconventional, but not what has made him this success is really fascinating. Um, also fascinating to watch a guy who's been the most consistent pitcher in baseball for the last five years or so um, go through some ups and downs that are really uncharacteristic for him. So it makes Barrios a pretty fascinating guy the rest of the way. What's going to be fascinating this next week is finding out 
is Brios very interesting because the Jays need him to be that number three, and if he can't be that number three level pitcher, you're in trouble? Or is Brios maybe competing with someone else for that number three spot as the Jays upgrade the back, the middle back of that rotation? Something's coming between now and Tuesday. Every person around the Blue Jays that we've spoke to seems to feel the same, and that's true at the national level when we speak to someone like John Morosi yesterday. Uh, that's true at the you know outside analysis level when we talk to someone like Ben Clemens or Dan Zimborski from Fangraphs who think, yeah, well, the Jays have enough of a window here and they're not elite, so you've got to address things. You've got to add. It's going to be a really fun week. I'm very excited for it. It'll be extra fun if the Jays continue this hot stretch. Uh, they've won eight of their last nine. They're facing a Cardinals team that's a little shorthanded. We're going to take a break, and we're going to tee this one up. We're going to go deep on Andre Pallante and some of the curiosities around his profile and how the Jays might play against that. I also have some weird Blue Jays statistical anomaly trivia for you after the break. Uh, the Bradley Zimmer line. I'm going to introduce that and throw some trivia at you around that uh, next on JSOC Plus on Sportsnet 590, The Fan. to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy with you for one more segment here before we hand it over to Ben Wagner and Arden Zwelling. 707 first pitch. They've got it for you on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Blair and Barker will be with you for Jay's Talk post game. And if you're watching on TV, get to hear Buck Martinez back, which is a, a really nice extra layer of thing, extra layer uh, when things are also going well, uh, it's just everyone seems very happy and lifted by Buck being back and being around. Uh, so really looking forward to that. Played a little song from a band called Cartel there with the line. I always used to use it um, for mailbags when I did a music podcast called Columbia House Party. Um, if you're not getting answers, ask better questions. It's just a nice way to tee up that we're going to answer some questions. But first... Got a weird stat thing to throw at you. And I know that's not surprising that I have weird stats. No one would ever bother to look up, but this is particularly weird. So Bradley Zimmer has lasted the entire year on the Jays roster. He's played in 68 games. If you only looked at that, you'd think this is a guy who has had an impact on this team. 68 games out of the the 96 the team's played. It's a fourth outfielder rate. However... In those 68 games, Bradley Zimmer only has 86 plate appearances. It's a little over one and a quarter plate appearances per game he's appeared in. That is one of the, we'll call it late game sub guys in franchise history. So I got a little three part here and I'm not going to have you. I mean, you could text in the answers if you can guess them. I don't think you're going to, but I didn't pace this out well enough. So I will just leave a pause and then we'll answer here. So. Bradley Zimmer, 1.26 plate appearances per game. There are only three other Blue Jays who have had fewer than 1.5 plate appearances per game in a season, 
and lasted 65 games. Like there are guys who have done it, you know, your, your Vinny Capras or Otto Lopez's who Otto's Lopez uh, to be grammatically correct, who have come up and not done much and then gone back down. But Zimmer's appeared in 68 games. So the cutoff here is 65 games and fewer than 1.5 plate appearances per game. There are three. We're going way back. I wasn't born for any of these. So we'll go through them quickly since uh, the old heads in the audience will be like, oh, you guys don't remember Ron Shepard and Joe Cannon and Tim Johnson. And uh, anyone younger will be like, Blake, why are you talking about Joe Cannon? Who is this guy? Uh, Joe Cannon in 1980 had just 50 plate appearances over 71 games with the Jays. Uh, he hit 080 with an 098 OBP. <laughs> Uh, not very good. Uh, he was also only two for four on the bases. He was someone who could play all three outfield positions and pinch run, but, uh, not very successful on the bases and certainly never when he got to hit. So Joe Cannon, 1980 is the first one. Ron Shepard, 1986, 73 plate appearances over 65 games. He hit a whopping 203, which is pretty good for this type of player. 236 OBP didn't even attempt a stolen base though. Another guy who could play three outfield positions and pinch ran a lot. Uh, he also ended up playing three years with the team and actually finished with fewer plate appearances than games played as a Blue Jay. 114 plate appearances, 115 games. Tim Johnson in 1978 is the other one. He was a, a utility infielder instead of a utility outfielder. Uh, the team acquired him for Tim Nordbrook in the middle of that year. And then he had 92 plate appearances in 68 games. So that's the territory Bradley Zimmer is in right now. Part two of this is career-wise, the few the Jays with the fewest plate appearances uh, per game over 65-plus games. And the weird thing about this was that not that none of these guys could hit. Eight of the 10 had sub-600 OPSs, and all of them had a sub-700 OPS. But surprisingly few guys who actually stole bases. You always think that this is going to be a Dalton Pompey situation where it's a guy who could play some defense and pinch run and steal bases. And very few of these guys did. So you're looking at Ron Shepard again, uh, Lou Thornton from 85 to 88, Tom Lawless, 89, 90, and then Bradley Zimmer. So he's fourth in terms of you are around a lot and never hit. Honorable mention to more recent ones here, Stephen Tolleson. 2014, 2015. He actually has the best OPS of this group at 697. And then Jonathan Davis, who got cups of coffee over four years and stole 11 bases. So rare territory Bradley Zimmer is in here for just being in games and not getting to hit. League-wide, the king of this is Tyler Wade, of course, who across the Yankees and Angels has just 654 plate appearances in 331 games uh, over, what, six seasons now? Bradley Zimmer, because of his Cleveland time, doesn't qualify like league-wide. He's only 58th. But, uh, yeah, Tyler Wade is the king here. And historically, like recent history-wise, Terrence Gore is the guy you're looking at as a guy who is strictly a pinch runner and maybe will let him field, but certainly not going to let him hit and is almost never going to start. So congratulations to Bradley Zimmer for threatening some very weird Blue Jays history right now. Bradley Zimmer is not starting tonight, by the way. We'll get the lineups in just a second. couple questions in the text line first. MP in Scarborough asks, who was catching Brios when he was successful this year? And unfortunately, MP, the answer is all over the place. Kirk has caught Brios in all but four of his starts, which means that Kirk has caught 
some really good burrito starts and some not so good burrito starts. Danny Jansen's caught three of them, not particularly great results. And Gabriel Moreno caught one when Barrios was lit up. So I don't know that there's a catcher takeaway there. I do know that during that three game stretch in June, when Brios was more effective, they did have Kirk change his positioning behind the plate to help with that as Brios was kind of figuring out uh, movement on the mound and trying to get those release points more consistent. Kirk set up a little differently, a little off center, which is rare for Jay's catcher. So watch for that tonight. Um, maybe that's part of what's clicking. Maybe they have Kirk being just quiet and right down the middle right now so Brios could just kind of focus on his own side of things. So MP and Scarborough, not a lot to take away there. Um, someone asked if I like the Barrios over five and a half strikeouts tonight. I do with the way his curveball has been missing bats lately. Obviously, Barrios, you know, one of the risks here is that he's been a little blow up prone. And if you don't get five innings in, you're probably not getting over five and a half strikeouts if you're Barrios. He has an 84th percentile chase rate. He's done a good job getting guys to swing at bad stuff. They've just made more contact with it than you'd like. But again, that curveball is a really good strikeout pitch, a really good swing and miss pitch, and he's been throwing it more, and it's only gotten more effective. The other factor here is that this isn't the ace Cardinals lineup. No Paul Goldschmidt, no Nolan Arenado. So you're taking away the two best hitters on a team that is really only a little above average against right-handed pitching in general, and now you're without two MVP candidates. So you might think... Well, yeah, that's a huge huge boost to strikeouts. I, I would say it's definitely a boost to Barrios' chances of going deep into the game. On the strikeout side, though, the guys who slide up in the order a little bit aren't high strikeout guys. Tommy Edmond, Dylan Carlson, Brandon Donovan, those are all guys with sub-20% strikeout rates against righties. Even Andrew Neisner, Corey Dickerson, Albert Pujols, again, all guys with sub-20 strikeout percentages. So what you're looking at here is if you want Barrios to get the strikeouts and, and rack those up, Nolan Gorman, Tyler O'Neill, Lars Newtbar. Those are the guys. Those are the big strikeout guys against righties uh, that you'll want to see him trying to miss bats against. Those are the guys that you can get those swing and miss outs uh, with. So those are those are the the kind of indicators to look at there. I want to talk about Andre Pallante. Not just because he's starting for the Cardinals tonight, but he is a pretty fascinating guy and why i say that is his fastball is better than just about any pitch in baseball at generating ground balls we talked yesterday to ben clemens about the fromber valdez comparison where valdez kind of defies the main things we look at with pitchers where he doesn't miss a ton of bats he's not an elite walk rate guy but Framber Valdez gets way more ground balls than anyone else in baseball. Now, if we break that down to pitch-specific stuff, you know whose fastball gets even more ground balls than Framber Valdez's sinker? Andre Pallante. Andre Pallante's fastball. And it's sometimes classified as a fastball and sometimes as a sinker on StatCast. It, it's effectively a, a sinker. Um, but I bunched them together for the purposes of this because um, StatCast just hasn't classified a lot as sinkers. It's just easier to, like, I, I think it's a classification error. Like, sometimes where a bad slider gets 
logged as a cutter and you look and it's like, oh, this guy's only thrown seven cutters. What? It's like, no, it's probably a slider. So Andre Pallante's fastball, 95 miles an hour. He'll throw it about 63% of the time. It's a heavy one and it will catch a lot of the zone. But we talk about launch angle sometimes. It's not my favorite of stats. You know, it's the Ryan Altapia stat of he beats it into the ground more than anyone. Or it's last year, anyway. Or it's the Vladimir Guerrero is in a slump stat where when he's worm burning, that's when you know his timing's off a little bit or what he's seeing at the plate is off a little bit. But in broad terms, launch angle is exactly what it sounds like. What is the average angle the ball comes off the bat at for a batter or for a pitcher? A negative launch angle means that ball is getting hit into the ground a lot. And Andre Pallante's fastball in the year has an average launch angle that is negative. A minus nine degree launch angle on average when someone makes contact with that fastball. To give you some context, minus nine degree launch angle. So picture, you know, a a flat line drive that's going right at the pitcher's thighs is a zero. So it's getting lower than that on average with the contact. Rymel Tapia had one of the lowest, he had the lowest launch, average launch angle in all of baseball last year. And I believe if it's not the lowest in the StatCast era, it's, it's one of the lowest. And that was an average of minus four. So Rymel Tapia had the lowest average, like he was the most ground ball heavy guy. And Palante's average fastball is way more ground ball heavy than Tapia was. You can look around baseball and there's no starter with a pitch that gets as many ground balls as this. Framber Valdez, the ground ball king, his sinker is not at that level. You have to lower the thresholds for number of pitches before you get to Clay Holmes. Clay Holmes' sinker is the one pitch in baseball over any amount of sample that is reliably getting more ground balls than Andre Pallante's fastball. It's a pretty remarkable pitch. So why isn't this guy being talked about more? Why isn't he being discussed as a Framber Valdez or or something like that? Well, first of all, he's a a 23-year-old rookie without a ton of prospect cash. He was a fourth-round pick. Um, He only topped out at 10th on the Cardinals' internal um, prospect rankings over at Fangraphs. And here's why. As good as that fastball is, as heavy as the sink is, and as much as he can get bad contact with fastballs in the zone. He doesn't miss bats. He has a 7.7% swinging strike rate this year. So less than 8% of the time when a player swings, they miss. That's a really high contact rate. You're opening yourself up to not only guys who could just hit that pitch well, but you're opening yourself up to some variance too when you're allowing that much contact and that many balls in play. So he has a bit of an, a fascinating batted ball profile where he's great at limiting, you know, how often a guy really barrels up a ball. But he also gets whiffs and chases out of the zone less than almost anyone. So it's kind of a bet on you can't hit it well enough. And that's, that's cool if you're Framber Valdez. That's great. That's That's been really successful. And as Katie Wu laid out for us earlier, 
the Cardinals have the defense behind them. Maybe not as much with Nolan Arenado and, and Paul Goldschmidt out tonight, but generally they have the type of defense that allows a pitcher to pitch that way. But Galante also walks an above average number of guys. When the ball has been hit in the air, it's gone out of the park quite a lot. And then the big thing is, is I don't think we know yet if Galante is a Palante rather uh, is a starter or a reliever. He was really, really effective as a reliever coming up this year. And he'd mostly started in the minors. Um, he he kind of came through the minors pretty quickly. He mostly started. He, he made the odd appearance out of the bullpen, but he's really, really effective as a reliever. And that hasn't quite been the case as a starter. He's got a 446 ERA as a starter, which isn't bad for a guy who, you know, you weren't expecting to have and, and got called up midway through the season and then bumped from the, the bullpen to the rotation. But in four of his last five starts, he's allowed three runs, three earned runs or more. And only one of those starts has been even average using game score as a, as, as an indicator. The Cardinals don't have the depth at pitching with massive Flaherty out to move Pallante back to the bullpen right now. And maybe not even if they make an addition because they're running with four starters right now. But I do wonder if Pallante is at least for now better off as a bullpen guy because it is, uh, I don't know. It seems like maybe people are, are catching up to what he's doing a little bit. And it's not necessarily just a times through the order thing because he teams have gotten to him as a starter, at least pretty early on. 891 OPS against him as a starter, his first time through the order. That's robust. 741 the second time through the order. So I don't think there's anything there that's, hey, teams are, once a guy sees you a couple times, they figure it out. I think it's maybe more of a case of, well, this guy throws the ball in the zone a lot and nobody's chasing stuff out of the zone. So if you're a team like the Blue Jays that, yeah, we talk a lot about how the more selective the Jays are, the more selectively aggressive, at least. They're they're never going to be a lead the league in pitches per plate appearance team, but that suits them. They're, they're better when they're being a little more disciplined. This is a guy who you're probably going to want to jump on early because teams have been able to jump on him early, and you know that he's going to catch a ton of the zone. You know that he's going to throw that fastball 63% of the time. And yeah, you're probably going to get some ground balls and be frustrated with yourself that that you couldn't lift that. I think it suits you to be fairly aggressive with a guy who is going to throw a fastball two-thirds of the time, and it's going to be in the zone for the most part. He'll also throw an 87-mile-an-hour slider to righties and a 77-mile-an-hour curveball uh, to both-handed hitters. The curveball is about his only chance to get swing and misses, um, but it also gets hit really hard, and the slider is just kind of fine. So Palante is not entirely an original, but there aren't a lot of pitchers like him to compare it to. So how, how have the Jays matched up against guys like him? There's not a huge sample of guys like him to compare it to. So the Jays have seen him once. Vlad went 0 for 1. Espinal and Springer walked. That's it. There is a small sample of, I, I filtered for the Jays facing righties with 
fastballs or sinkers in that velocity range and in that spin rate range, trying to replicate what a Framber Valdez, Andre Plante, Clay Holmes style sinking fastball looks like. Against those, the Jays are actually seventh in the league in, in run value, which is good. George Springer, Teoscar Hernandez, Kevin Biggio, all pretty good against pitchers like that or pitches like that. Um, Matt Chapman, Bobachet, Santiago Espinal have been lesser. Those are small samples, though, when we're getting into that specific with pitches. So don't put a, don't put too much faith in that. But I do think Palante is a guy that Jay should be able to get to. Although we said that a lot during their one and nine stretch when they kept facing soft tossing lefties, uh, because those are supposed to be the type of guys this lineup can hit. Uh, the lineup's cooking right now, or it has been. So we'll see if they can continue that against Andre Palante. Here's how the Jays line up for tonight, by the way. George Springer, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. at DH, hitting second. Alejandro Kirk catches and hits third. Bo Bichette, Teoscar Hernandez, Lourdes Gurriel Jr., Matt Chapman, Santiago Espinal, and Kevin Biggio rounding it out, playing first, the lone lefty in the lineup. So your top eight are about what you've come to expect. Jansen gets uh, an off day as Kirk catches Barrios, and then Biggio draws in so Vlad can get a DH day. And also just to get... Biggio's bat in the lineup. Uh, I mentioned that he's a guy who um, has had some success against that type of right-handed pitch. So we'll see how that works out. The Cardinals, once again, no Nolan Arenado, no Paul Goldschmidt, 296 average and 887 OPS for Arenado, 335 average, 1.036 OPS for Paul Goldschmidt. Those two have combined for 42 home runs this year, which is 40% of the home runs the Cardinals have hit. They're also without Austin Romine. Uh, those three on the restricted list. Also without Yadier Molina and Harrison Bader, who are just injured and uh, both, I believe, uh, have started rehab assignments now. The names that the Cardinals called up for this series as depth or two call-ups and one contract selected, uh, to use the proper terminology, not guys that you need to really concern yourself with. They're just the guy and the Cardinals do just the guy better than any other team. They always find just the guy and it ends up being, uh, you know, those guys get elevated from just the guy to, Ooh, he's a guy. None of them are starting tonight. They'll just be bench depth. They, they, the three players they brought up were all um, position players. They'll be the bench tonight. The Cardinals line up like this against Jose Brios, Tommy Edmond, Dylan Carlson, our pal, Tyler O'Neill. Albert Pujols, the legend, Brendan Donovan, Nolan Gorman, old friend Corey Dickerson at the DH spot, Lars Nootbar, and Andrew Neisner. Not a ton of sample against Jose Brios for that group. Corey Dickerson's uh, five for 11 with four extra base hits. That could be a bit of a problem. Pujols is three of six. And it's small sample sizes after that. 35 plate appearances total against Brios with a 306 expected weighted on base average. So that's uh, that's pretty good when you take into account strikeouts, walks, and then the quality of contact against Brios. And again, that curveball has been popping lately. The Cardinals entered as a just above average team on offense over the last 30 and against right-handed pitching on the season. And again, two MVP caliber guys not in the lineup for them. So keep an eye out for Jose Brios' curveball and his ability to generate swing and miss with that because his chase rate has gotten back to a near elite level and he's got a near elite walk rate. Just got to cut out the hard contact. And over the last couple starts, it's looked like the way to do that 
scale back on the fastball, trust the curveball a little bit more. The opposite of your fastball setting up the other stuff. Your fastball is just there because you can't throw 100% curveballs. Or maybe you can. We'll see if we can push this further and further. And we'll see if Bradley Zimmer gets to pinch run or be a fielding replacement tonight and continue that bizarre uh, stat trend uh, that I laid out earlier that he's uh, he's working on here. 707 is your first pitch. We're going to kick it to Ben Wagner and Arden Zwelling shortly. Uh, a thank you to Chris Black, who is not producing the game on TV tonight. I didn't even know. I brought him on here. He's on vacation, uh, but he took the time out with us to, to talk about uh, Buck Martinez and, and some of the statistical trends we're seeing with Rymel Tapia and Jose Barrios. Uh, thank you to Katie Wu from The Athletic, who came on and gave us the Cardinals side of things, um, including uh, some notes on Palante and, yeah, Cardinals defense, not as stout tonight behind their heavy ground ball guy. We'll see how that works out. And thank you to Shai Davidi as well, who took some time out for us uh, to talk about Jose Brios feeling like he's found it, which is great to hear. Let's see if it can continue for more than three or four starts at a time. Um, if you missed it earlier, you say Kikuchi through a side session today could possibly start in that Detroit series. And it sounds like they'd want him Thursday because if things go poorly, at least he's between Gosman and Manoa in the rotation. So your bullpen load is spread out. I like that. It doesn't make me the most confident that you're bringing a guy back into the rotation who struggled. And you're trying to think of, well, if this is a disaster again, uh, how do things best line up? But that's where you're at in the Yusei Kikuchi experience right now. And hey. Maybe this is the last time you need to worry about that fifth starter slot for a while because the trade deadline is in a week. Uh, The Jays, winners of eight of their last nine, things are rolling. Additions sound like they're coming between now and Tuesday. Next Tuesday. Today is Tuesday. If the Toronto Blue Jays can string together a few more wins here, it could be a really exciting week. Two against the Cardinals, four against the Tigers, Thank you to those guests. Thank you to JR and Andrew behind the glass. We'll be back tomorrow in this five to seven slot for Jay's Talk Plus and to tee up Adam Wainwright against Kevin Gosman. What a what a matchup that's going to be tomorrow. Um, ben Wagner and Arden Zwelling have the call for you next. Blair and Barker back for Jay's Talk post game. Uh, we've got Dan Schulman, Adnan Burke, and Ricky Romero tomorrow. Loaded show from producer JR. I uh, will talk to you tomorrow when Jay's Talk Plus returns.